This show is supported by three awesome Bitcoin companies. The first is Shift Crypto. They make the Bitbox O2 Bitcoin-only hardware wallet. If you're new to Bitcoin and you're looking for a way to take self-custody of your Bitcoin, which you absolutely should be doing, this is a very good option. It's very easy to set up. It's very easy to use. Very slick interface. A great option to get you started on your self-custody journey. Visit shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapidfire to learn more about the product and get 5% off. Next up is the Bitcoin 2022 conference. The 2021 conference was amazing. One of the best experiences of my life. And it's going down again in Miami, April 6th to the 9th. But this time, instead of in Wynwood and a 13,000 person capacity, it's happening on Miami Beach and a 35,000 person capacity. I can't even begin to imagine how amazing it's going to be. There's always a ton of peripheral events and parties and extra stuff going on around the conference. And you get to meet so many awesome people at the conference itself. It really is tremendous. If you've never been to a Bitcoin conference before, this is the one to go to. So check out their website and at checkout, use the code RAPIDFIRE and get 10% off. And finally, the awesome people at bullbitcoin.com. If you're looking to buy Bitcoin in Canada, this is an amazing option. Have a look into them. They are a privacy-focused, non-custodial exchange, which means you buy Bitcoin through them, and then the Bitcoin goes directly to your own custody solution, which in my opinion is the most secure way to purchase Bitcoin. Also soon, they'll be offering a white glove service for international clients. So for people that may seem that the setting up their own custody solution is a little bit daunting, they'll be there to hold your hand to get you set up in the best way possible. So keep track of their website for updates on when those services will be available. Let's do it. We're live. There we go. Fuck it. Right. Patch it together. Got to make it work. Uh, so Peter, I, I deleted the other... Um, post on Twitter and stuff. So thank you for being here and uh, maybe a quick introduction and we'll, we'll get rolling. Hi John, really good to be here as well. I'm a great fan of your show. Um, I spent a lot of time listening, listening to it during the like, 2020 lockdown days in the UK and it's really good that I'm having the chance to be uh, on here chatting with you today. Uh, in terms of my background, uh, I've spent about 10 years living in China uh, prior, to do, prior to doing what I do today and living over there, I worked in uh, trade and investment and uh, for the British Embassy for a time and for a company. But during 2017, I started to learn more about Bitcoin, which was going on, which was, a lot of stuff was going on within China during that time. And um, I gradually made a move to a new career path. And I'm now working as a uh, consultant in the Bitcoin space for uh, three businesses. Uh, the Free Private Cities Foundation, Incrementum, and uh, Safety in the Moose's uh, online education platform, safety.com. Awesome. Uh, what led you to China? What's your China origin story before we get into the Bitcoin origin story? So when I was at uni, I didn't really, I studied physics with philosophy, which is not exactly a vocational set of majors to do. So afterwards, I just thought, I wanted to do something a bit different, travel overseas, do a kind of post-university gap year. And I didn't really think a lot about it. I just thought China seemed like an interesting place. There were lots of programs for teaching English over there. So I applied for one with the British Council, which is a British cultural relations body, and got uh, succeeded in getting the place. And then from then on, I... Uh, 
became more and more interested in China as I started learning the language, as I started finding out more about the history, as I started to get a sense of the energy that there is on the ground over there and the pace of development. And I decided to stay, originally thinking it would be for like one, two, three years, but one year turned to two and then I was there for 10 years <laughs> in the end. And uh, it, was, it was a real adventure. And uh, yeah, similar, similar to you in a way, the sort of length of time and uh, the, uh, the moving around within the country as well. So where were you, where, where were the cities that you lived in, in China? So I started down in Guangzhou and I lived there for one year. And then that wasn't quite what I had expected China to be like. I expected it to be a bit more, because Guangzhou is a huge city, something like uh, 12 million people, something like that. And I expected China to be a bit more rural, idyllic, and so I decided that for my next year, I would try and find something that was in a more rural part. And I thought Sichuan, that seems really rural. I'd heard some people that have moved there and lived there. So I ended up without even visiting the place, going to this, what I would call a middle-sized Chinese city called Nanchong, expecting that to be the kind of idyllic rural China that I was expecting. And of course, that also turned out to be quite a large city, not on the scale of Guangzhou, but I had a really great time there. That was like my formative time in China. And then I ended up um, with, the, with the embassy in Beijing, working there for a time. I spent two years in Wuhan and then I moved back to Beijing and that's where I spent the final four years of my time. Right, so no, no stint in Shanghai? No, although I did visit and Shanghai is another really great place, another really nice fusion of east and west and yeah. a lot of old old and new bits combined but never yeah. lived there yeah i shanghai is definitely my my favorite area and un, i guess dissimilar to you i i went there for the mega city you know i i thought shanghai was new york at the turn of the the, the century you know 19, early 1900s center of the world and wanted to be a part of the action i mean as you referenced the energy there is unbelievable and the development and especially I'm sure it's still very much like that, but I think the period where we were there, like the 2010 to 2020 era, was probably the, I don't know if the most robust, but I mean, man, the, I don't know if that energy will ever be replicated again on that scale, because it was just breakneck pace and so much ambition and so much, uh, you know, so much building and everybody is just kind of on fire with that energy and you go out on the street and there's this is altogether different. I'd get a culture shock when I would go home to Canada because everything was so subdued and people were so comfortable and all that kind of stuff. And then when I would, after the Christmas break, I'd go back to China and it would take me a week or two to get like back up to, to that speed, you know, because it's, it, it's so dramatic. Um, what's your take on, what was your take on your time in China? What's your current take on China economically, politically, you know, how do you, what's your view on all that? Well, I went to China in part, in part it was, it was random as I say, like I saw that there was this opportunity to study, uh, to teach English over there. But I think the thing that cemented me in, in that path and like choosing to apply for that, there was also a program in Japan that, that I did consider applying for. But since studying history at, at school, I was just really intrigued by communism, like communist political systems 
not because I was sympathetic to the ideas, but because I found it really interesting that there'd been this guy, this kind of philosopher guy, Karl Marx, and he had inspired people to create this political system. And then it had ended up taking over what at its peak was about a third of the world's population. And it was almost like a religion in its ideology, its cult of the personality. And the fact that China was one of the five remaining nominally com communist countries in the world was quite interesting to me. And when I went there, I expected it to be a bit more, a bit less developed on the one hand, and also a bit more communist in the sense of being more controlled, more state run, more regulated, um, more homogenous. And my whole 10 years in China taught me that that really isn't the case. In many ways, China is a much more capitalist country uh, than Britain, where I grew up, even though the narrative is that there's this kind of battle between free market capitalism in the West and state, uh, state socialism in the, in the East. I came to realize that that wasn't the case. And there are lots of things about China that um, I came to really admire. And there were lots of things that frustrated me about living there. Um, and I think overall, there are certain things about China that I'm, I'm really optimistic about, but there are other things that I would really like to see, see change. And it is upsetting to me what's happened in the last couple of years in that uh, places all around the world, but including China, have become more restricted and less energetic, as you say. Like when we were there, maybe that was a bit of a golden era in terms of the, the dynamism that was going on. But now everywhere in this kind of COVID era, uh, has become more restricted and, and I can't even go back to China now, unfortunately. Why is that? So what's changed? Because if you want to go back to China, you've got to spend two weeks in a quarantine hotel. You have to have a specific reason to go uh, oh, to get really? a visa. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's very sad. Like, I left in January 2020 with about two days notice. And luckily, I had been like, progressing towards a very minimalist lifestyle in the months prior to that. So I was able to respond quickly to what was happening and like take all my stuff with me. But it wasn't something that I wanted to do. I didn't really want to leave like that. And I wasn't able to say goodbyes to people. So it was, it was a bit tough. Yeah. And I do miss a lot of people that are over there. And I do hope I can get back sooner rather than later. So that's an like get back to live and work is something you'd like to do. I think things have moved on a lot for me personally since that time. Yeah. And the to live and work, the, my situation at the moment is that I'm totally remote. This is something that I've tried to engineer with my life because I realized that it would bring a lot of advantages in terms of what I was able to experience. It would mm -hmm. provide the opportunity to be based in one place and be more stable if that was a desired option, but it would also provide the opportunity to, to move around more. And I would really like to go back to China to see all the people that I had to say goodbye to or didn't get to say goodbye to. Um, but I would also like to spend a bit of a stim traveling around there, but I probably don't see myself living there uh, again 
uh, unless something radical changes. Yeah. You know, I, I used to come back, as I said, for Christmas vacation and people would find it so odd or interesting that I lived in China, right? Because as you say, there's the perception of China being this like totalitarian communist dictatorship regime. And then the reality on the ground is that, you know, especially as a foreigner, but even as your average Chinese citizen, like if you just don't involve yourself in political life, first of all, there's no reason to. I mean, the primary, the primary political issue you know, in the world typically is an economic one, right? Do people have more opportunity than they previously had? And if the answer is yes, and especially if the answer is yes on the scale that was true in China, people don't really care about politics. Am I safe? Do I have opportunity? Cool, I'm, I'm gonna go pursue that and I don't wanna be involved in politics. And that's the case for most people in China. And like, I would come back and echo the same sentiment that you just did. And I know like China has these overhanging really serious like human rights abuse issues and you know the, the, there are obviously many uh reasons to be highly critical of the chinese communist party and the regime and that kind of stuff but as far as my experience on the ground living in in china as an expat i would always come back and say like china is way freer than things are here in canada you know like the the government and imposition and regulations are a far lesser part of my life than they typically are in Canada. You know, you, and, and of course the opportunity, you know, there's lots of opportunity and lots of activity and the modern, you know, things were incredibly modern to your earlier point. I mean, like a city like Shanghai and Beijing, probably to a, a lesser extent, but still to a great extent and more and more all the time is like the most modern place in the world, probably. And, uh, you know, so it was very interesting to come back and have to kind of explain that to people every time. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that you've engineered your life to be adaptable. And I think, especially in light of COVID, a lot of people see the value in that. And in the Bitcoin space, we are often now talking about, you know, how to maneuver this landscape, you know, and maybe you're hunkering down in red state US, or maybe you found a little pocket somewhere in the world. But if not, the name of the game seems to be to, to try to engineer an adaptable lifestyle so that you can move around like that. What, I mean, what's your take about since leaving China and the COVID situation? I mean, what's your impression on all this? Why is this playing out? What's your, you know, what's the approach that you're trying to take to maneuver this optimally, let's say? So on a personal level, I've just always been really excited about the idea of being able to travel and experience different cultures. And I've tried to find ways that I can do that through the careers that I've pursued and how I've spent my free time and annual leave. Um, so I've traveled, I've traveled a lot. And the thing I, I'd always felt when, when traveling is that there was always this nagging, nagging feeling at the back of my mind that this was like too short. I was having to cram everything into a specific um, window, like two bookends, one at the start of my annual leave, one at the end of my annual leave. And I feel like that's how I'd experienced most of my travel in the past. I hadn't been able to really take things slowly. I'd felt obliged to see all of the sites and pack stuff in. And then you've got the cost of it. You've got to pay for a flight at one, one end and then at the other end. And it just, means that 
you don't really appreciate travel in the way that, for example, Rolf Potts describes in his book Vagabonding, where you move from place to place to place. So on a personal level, it's something that I'd wanted to do for a long time. And I've been thinking in 2019, I wasn't really happy in my job. And I was feeling like so much of it was remote. I was representing a company in Beijing and I did all these emails, but other than a few meetings in Beijing, I could have been anywhere. And I was thinking, well, is there a way that I can move to a new job where I'll be able to um, just work completely remotely? So that was kind of my thinking from mid 2019. And then when the coronavirus thing came along, uh, this seemed like a good opportunity. Well, in my mind, this seemed like a good opportunity to actually make the change. Uh, most people thought it was completely crazy because it wasn't the situation. It wasn't the case that like I, you know, the coronavirus happened and I lost my job. Like I had a secure job, but I just kind of saw this as like, things are changing. We're going to have to do a, a strategic right, rethink in the company. Do I want to be here or do I want to actually try and pursue something different? And I decided to go in that, that other direction. And I took six months off to study economics and do some like reading of some really long good books that I'd wanted to get to for a long time but didn't feel I ever had the time to with work commitments and so I, I did I did make the change I can come on to like what I did in in a moment but mm. what I feel about the general environment is that firstly through the lockdowns people have realized that they can work remotely a lot more than they um, previously thought. And secondly, the lockdowns have really restricted people. And although I would say the vast, well, the majority, let's say, of people tend to support lockdowns, even though I re I'm really against lockdowns, the vast majority of people seem to support them. But there is this, large and very significant minority of people who say locking people in their homes stopping people from vis visiting their elderly relatives stopping people from socializing stopping people from participating in culture like this is not okay this is not something that we want to accept and so I'm someone who's now thinking I'm 32 years old and I'm thinking you know what's next for the next stage of my life and Unfortunately, I've seen that in the UK and in many other countries, people are willing to just shut society down. And more and more people, I think, are saying, well, if there are countries where they're not willing to do that, like I'm planning on going to Mexico in a couple of months because I understand Mexico have not done these lockdowns. I know there's a lot of problems in Mexico and other areas, but at least I know that they're much less likely to lock down for the winter when it's looking like all of Europe is, is heading in that direction, at least to some extent. Um, so I, I feel as well that there is that significant minority of people who don't agree with the lockdown policies that are now thinking about ways that they can divorce themselves from that traditional work model of staying in one place and being beholden to whatever the, the kind of majoritarian uh, decision is on how they can live their lives. Yeah, I mean, the sovereign individual thesis playing out just perfectly right i mean this is this is what they articulated in that book and and why it's it's almost spooky but also at the same time it's entirely rational 
So when you left China early 2020, was this the beginning of the Austrian economics rabbit hole for you or had you been dabbling prior to that? And I guess you can weave in the Bitcoin origin story in that as well. Sure. Well, they're, they're both very closely intertwined. When I moved to Beijing in 2017, or when I started a new job in Beijing in 2017, which was a trade and investment job, I was running business missions for UK companies to China. Um, I moved to a new co-working space and I ended up meeting some Bitcoiners in, in this co-working space. And I had no idea what this Bitcoin thing was. I'd vaguely heard about it from a Chinese lesson that I did back in 2015, where it was on the subject of Bitcoin and I just learned a bit of vocab around it, but I hadn't dug in. I wasn't particularly interested in it or, or understand why it was significant. And I just thought things like finance, like they, they kind of facilitate people's transactions, but they're, they're not really important. They probably have too big a role in the economy, but I didn't really have a particularly coherent view on, you know, monetary economics. Mm -hmm. And it was through meeting these Bitcoiners that I started to get arguments in a more libertarian direction. Uh, there was a guy in particular called Neil Woodfine, who I ended up talking to, talking to a lot and having some debates with. And he would recommend that these books that I go and go and read and these arguments that I go and study. And very quickly in 2017, I, I kind of got it because I've been working in the government previously and I'd seen firsthand what all of the mainstream economic justifications are for spending public money. And it's all about developing business cases with economic models and justifications for how we might shift GDP, GDP growth in this province if we are to like, undertake an intervention that would shift Chinese policy by 2%, 3% in this particular area. Like, it, I, I was already very skeptical of those kind of arguments. And then when I got exposed to the libertarian Austrian economics type arguments, it was like the penny dropped and I realized that actually this was a coherent way of understanding economics and it just provided huge explanatory power. So I ended up like getting some Bitcoin in like mid 2017 and just as it was kind of heading to that really euphoric kind of period. And so all this stuff was happening to me at the same time. Like I, was, I was getting into Bitcoin and buying Bitcoin. I was reading you know, Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises in my spare time outside work. And it kind of felt a bit odd because it was almost like the stuff I was reading about monetary history. So one of the very early books I read um, was, is Rothbard's What Has Government Done to Our Money? And reading that and then seeing the Bitcoin price soar towards 20,000 uh, from about four or 5,000 felt like a, a bit like a vindication uh, of what I was reading. So that's how it started. I ended up going very deep with the Austrian economics, reading a lot of authors. And I decided earlier this year that I was going to make that the focus of a new career. Okay. How's that been going? <laughs> how, how, have you, how have you translated that, you know, sparked new interest in Austrian economics and Bitcoin? I mean, yeah, how, how have you navigated those waters? Because 
uh, I mean, I'll put a little bit more meat on this question. I think a lot of people get exposure to Bitcoin and then they get exposure to these ideas in Austrian economics, whether or not they consult the, the actual literature or not, right? I think, and, and I'm probably an example of that. I have not con consulted a lot of the Austrian economics literature, but I think understanding Bitcoin de facto gives you a lot of that. And then you just end up hearing how related these insights are and how the, you know, the kind of economic theory, if you want to call it that, is embedded in Bitcoin or it's articulated in, in the Austrian school. And so how has that, yeah, I mean, how have you taken that interest and, and tried to translate it into to actual career? And what yeah. was the interim period like after the sell-off in 17? You're still in China, 18, 19, things are in the doldrums. I mean, how did you, how did your thinking change or evolve during that time? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. By the way, that's really interesting. Like having listened to a lot of your podcasts in the, in the past, it's interesting that you said you haven't kind of done that much reading of the like original text and stuff, because I think you articulate lots of the concepts very clearly, like much more clearly than I, I could. Um, like you recently with Maxime Barnier, you were like, coming up some very succinct ways with describing Austrian economics concepts. Um, and so I think that's something worth reflecting on that we're like, as a community, I do feel like Bitcoiners have embedded these kinds of concepts really well. And I don't think you necessarily need to like spend loads of time reading the original texts, although there is, there are obvious benefits to it, but, um, you know, what matters is, is the ideas and being able to think through the logic of, of what's what's being said. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's just interesting to hear. Um, so the question on like what the interim period was like was, it was, yeah, I mean, 2018 came along, <laughs> bear market began. Um, I, I kind of bought everywhere from the four or five or whatever to 20K um, right at the peak. And then there were points where, you know, it does crash and you do, you've not been through any kind of bear market before. And you start to think, what have I done? Like, <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> particularly, particularly John, because I, I'd been quite a big saver. I'd, I'd um, you know, been quite frugal in China because you can be frugal over there. Mm. And I hadn't been, I found the work I was doing quite, um, quite taxing. Uh, I didn't really enjoy it a lot. And so I really associated a lot of the difficult things I had to go through in, in the job with, you know, the savings and stuff. Right. And then I kind of came convinced that, that this was the Bitcoin was a better savings technology than fiat money. And so I kind of, I took like a pretty big punt, like not immediately. I took, I'd say I took a big punt on this thesis of Bitcoin working out, uh, being correct. And I remember in particular, there was one time in 2018 when Bitcoin had like fallen really bad. And this was like when I think I acquired the majority of my Bitcoin. <laughs> and I remember like sitting there in, in a hotel room in London and making the transaction and think, and then just thinking, okay, it's done. And thinking, have I just made a huge, huge mistake? You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's psychologically very, very weird. But then 2020 happened, 2021 happened, 
and uh, it seems like, like that was a very good decision <laughs> right now. <laughs> but you do you do have your moments where you think, is this actually the correct theory of money? You know, maybe the state theory of money has got its it's got its benefits in some ways. <laughs> um, I do think it does have some benefits actually, but. Uh, but yeah, it was it was it was definitely a journey um, that of like learning about Austrian economics and monetary theory and being into Bitcoin and that whole thing added a very real skin in the game element to to the whole process. Yeah. Uh, what you said, the state theory of money has some benefits. Would you like to elaborate? Yeah. The state theory of money states that money has value because of coercion, because states have the ability to force people to use it through taxation. And I think this is, it is the case that states have the power of coercion. It doesn't mean that they, they are, that the, that that is a moral and ethically justified thing, but it does mean that you can create demand for an asset by coercing people into using it. Sure. And I think that's what Bitcoin is up against. Now, do I think that Bitcoin is going to succeed in the long run over the like, state issue monies? Yeah, absolutely. And I've made decisions that you know support that I think it's going to happen. But it is possible for coercive organizations to create demand by artificially forcing people to use the asset. And uh, in the case of state-owned money, that's what states do. You have to use pound sterling or US dollars or euros if you want to uh, conduct business. Uh, if you don't, you, <laughs> you go to prison, you know, you, you can't get around it. And I think that one of the options for, for the future in terms of that is that there are states, um, like existing states like El Salvador or new states that might emerge or new free private cities that might emerge where people take themselves entirely onto a Bitcoin standard and those states end up outcompeting the other states. But at the same time, most of the world has this fiat monetary system. And you have, in order to oper operate a business, you can get a certain, you can get so far with using a kind of money that is not state sanctioned. But ultimately, if you're in a place where that is not allowed and the government has the monopoly on the use of force, then it becomes a kind of black market good. And so I think that's what Bitcoin is up against. Right. Yeah, I mean- Lots of take. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to disagree with that. It, it exists because of coercion. A free market obviously would not choose it. And market actors within that system who have uh, the latitude or flexibility or excess capital to make alternative choices to preserve or grow capital obviously do. And this is why we see, you know, the monetary premium on so many assets and the hyper financialization that, that's occurring because, you know, people don't want to use that. They use it to the extent that they must. And then, of course, there's this weird element that when you instantiate a system based on coercion like that, like how much does that influence the, the other behaviors of, of market actors, right? Once you put them in a position where one of their primary economic calculations is derived through coercion. How much does that kind of like zombify them into making other kind of into having perversions in other decisions permeate uh, their life and those decisions and 
you know, we could broadly sum this up as like the fiat world and the, 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 the fiat prefix that we place on so many things. Like, why is it that, you know, we call fiat academia and fiat food and, and fiat money and fiat culture. And it's very much because of that coercive mechanism and all the downstream effects of that bleeding into those elements of the culture and perverting their natural function and perverting the, the preferences and the motivations and the, the incentives that exist downstream of that. And, you know, that's what we're trying to fix, right? Or that's what we're participating in an alternative system that removes a lot of that. And which brings us, I, I guess, to, you know, what you were saying in 2020, where you tried, you wanted to make a career move. And so what's that been like? And, you know, I guess this is, also partially partially leads into a question that I often ask and one of the topics that I'm super interested in is how Bitcoin changes you right and so in your case it sounds like and, and man I can totally relate to this because when I was the latter years in China for me as much as I liked the lifestyle there the work was just soul destroying in fact you know for most of my life in China the work was pretty soul destroying and and I think a lot of people can relate to that, whether they're in China or America or Europe, because most work is kind of soul destroying, right? In, a, in an economy and in a culture that's been so perverted as ours has been through the base layer money, the things that emerge on top of that aren't necessarily coherent with, you know, the preferences and the desires and the motivations and the type of work that people would like to be doing. And there is this felt sense like, why do I feel so incongruent? Like, because, you know, ostensibly, and I know this is very complex and I'm oversimplifying, but like the preferences that an individual feels should roughly match, you know, the options that are available to them out in the world, right? If they truly are their preferences and their values, because those are the things that they would, would uh, select in terms of deploying their capital towards, in terms of their spending and all that kind of stuff. And so there should be a, 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 a a better coherence or like a more a high fidelity mirror between the individual and the culture. But I think we're finding in the world today is that a lot of people feel like that mirror is very muddy. It's not a very high fidelity mirror. People feel a certain way and then they look out in the world and it doesn't line up very well at all. And I think, you know, in my opinion, that is because of how the co-option of the monetary system has caused the let's say the preferences of the people that most control that system to be over accentuated in the culture and the, and in the economy and the people that don't have control or influence of, of the monetary system and therefore don't have that much control over di directing the preferences that exist in the economy and the culture, their preferences are underrepresented as a result of that. And that creates this schism where people don't feel so, um, yeah, don't, don't feel so connected to the broader culture. So long-winded way of saying, like, I think a lot of us feel that soul-crushing aspect of our work, like, man, I don't want to be doing this. Uh, and then you come around to learning about Bitcoin and learning about Austrian economics, learning about all the different ways that Bitcoin rectifies these problems in the system. And then you start to develop a, a perception or, you know, an imagery in your mind of a more hopeful future. And this is why, of course, we say Bitcoin is hope, right? You, you, you project out and you see something far more uh, fair and far more in line with those elements of yourself that you want to express and that you want to amplify and that you want to share with the world. 
And this is, you know, and then we see people making a decision like you've made, like I've made, like all these people that are trying to enter the Bitcoin space have made and say, like, I want to contribute to that. That is, you know, way more meaningful to me. And I get way more pleasure out of that. And sure, it doesn't help that if you bought Bitcoin a few years ago, or even in, in March 2020, that like that gives you a nice little foundation to actually be able to make that choice to remove a bit of the financial security pressure that might be keeping you in that soul destroying job. And allow you to say, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll the dice. I'm gonna take a risk and actually deploy my energy and capital into something that I believe more in. And so, you know, how's that process been like for you since I guess making a choice like that in early 2020? Yeah. Yeah, that's very well put, John. And as you say, if you distort the monetary system, you end up distorting everything because it's the way in which we send signals to each other about what we value. And the thing that really attracts me to Bitcoin is that by its nature, as a bearer instrument that can't be coercively uh, inflated or can't be taken away by people without their consent, you limit these interactions in the economy to mutually beneficial voluntary transactions. No one can take your Bitcoin, so no one can force you to, uh, to no one can use Bitcoin in order to um, you know, engage in involuntary transactions that involve coercion. And I think one of the problems we have at the moment is because money is not only centrally controlled and created by government spending and by central banks, you have the kind of spending power and you know the time human time that that draws on being distributed first from the government and the financial system and then towards the end of the uh, the other parts of the economy mm. but at the same time you end up because people are forced to use this system and because the system is highly regulated like there are lots of activities that you can't engage in if you have a bank account otherwise your bank account will get shut down you force human interaction into this very artificial realm. And it means that a lot of people, because they need to make money, because they need to survive, they end up doing jobs that they don't find rewarding. And I'd say that's approximately the situation I found myself in. I didn't find the work particularly rewarding, um, but it was maybe a product of that, of that system to a certain extent. Sure. So yeah, do you wanna come in there? No, I'd, I'd love to hear once you made that choice or, you know, it sounds like you made that choice because it wasn't particularly rewarding, but, you know, talk about making that choice and jumping off the deep end and saying like, you know, I'm actually going to, I'm going to take a different path in, in life as, as a result of your conviction in this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So as you say, you know, being involved in Bitcoin and Bitcoin doing rather well uh, did help, was helpful in making the decision, you know, to, to move on um it just meant that there was a kind of insurance policy like if this really goes wrong that's still there as a way that i can something i can draw on if mm -hmm. I, I can't pay the bills or whatever so i took this sabbatical six months off i spent a bit of time in russia i spent a lot of time reading these austrian economics books and reading like some russian classics like anna karenina like these like really deep books that mm -hmm. you want to take time to read. I had this big list and I worked through it and it was a really good, it was a really good few months 
tinged by a bit of darkness with everything that was happening in the world, but it was a really good period of self-growth. And what I started doing is, because I was reading these books, I was taking part in Saifedean Amus's online economics courses, and we were having these weekly discussions with um, other people that are interested in economics and Bitcoin. Um, so I was getting to read all these interesting books as part of that, like partly they were the books of guests that are appearing on his podcast. And I decided that rather than just like taking this all in myself, I would try and summarize it uh, so I could share it with other people so that they could maybe be inspired to read some of these books as well. And also from a personal perspective, that process helped me to kind of solidify the arguments and the evidence presented in the books in a way that was more compartmentalized and easy to remember. So I started putting out these like summary Twitter threads of various books that I'd read. Like I put one out on the sovereign individual that you mentioned earlier. I put one out on When Money Dies by Adam Ferguson about the Weimar hyperinflation. And these threads started to get a bit of traction online. And the first approach I got from someone was from a guy called Ronnie Sturfler who works for a Liechtenstein-based investment firm, a wealth management firm called Incrementum. And he said, I've seen some of your Twitter threads that you're doing, like that sound, we'd love to have some stuff like that for our company based on the content we're doing. Would you be interested in like, and also we use the Austrian School of Economics to inform our investment philosophy and our, and our macroeconomic analysis. So this seems really relevant to what you're doing. So he got in touch with me and I started producing content for him and contributing to some of his reports um, that they do at the firm. And the reason that firm is really interesting to me is, is that as I was studying the Austrian economics stuff, like you obviously get introduced to a lot of uh, gold bug stuff and stuff to do with how gold functioned historically as money. And at the same time, I was interested in Bitcoin and this firm Incrementum have traditionally worked with people that are interested in precious metals, but they also have active funds where they, where they trade Bitcoin, hold Bitcoin and gold in a mixed portfolio, and they produce analysis on Bitcoin as well. So they interested me in that they were bridging this more traditional um, old world Europeans precious metals investment community with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And so I was really excited to work with them. So that was the first touch point. And then from there, I ended up getting more work with free private cities. I ended up actually working for Safer Dean. I still do that now. And I did a bit of work with Blockstream as well. And what's it been like, man? Because, you know, again, I, I explore this idea or phenomenon of transformation in Bitcoin a lot and how interacting with the asset itself, how understanding its many different elements causes a fairly profound transformation in people and then you know one of the big moves is like when you actually can extricate yourself from the former system and you can actually begin contributing or working in that space itself i mean a lot of people report that it's quite the quality of life improvement all those things taken together so you know have you experienced something like that since making these decisions and you know ostensibly working in a capacity that you're more that's more fulfilling and satisfying and then of course the the orange pill itself you know maybe changing you in other ways have you you can you comment on that yeah definitely it's it's really great to be working on stuff that you're passionate about 
and interested in. And I was interested in a lot of aspects of my old work, but I can't say that it was a passion. And Bitcoin and creating systems that are more aligned to good economic, what I would describe as good economic thinking, is something that I am passionate about. Like I do feel very strongly on an emotional level that there are lots of things going on in, going wrong in the world. And I feel like economics properly understood provides the answers to that. And it's upsetting in a way when I feel like the Overton window is just in completely the wrong place. Like in my country, the UK, the parties are arguing about, you know, whether it should be 45% government spending, like percent of GDP or, or 47%, and whether we should give the NHS an extra six billion pounds or not, and whether we should increase minimum wage. And it's like, this is where the vast majority of people are. And when you start looking at things from an Austrian economics perspective, you understand that this whole system has grown up over time and all of these problems that we observe in society, um, like the social problems we observe and the, the economic problems and some of the things that feel deeply unfair about the society, they're largely a product of the fact that we have over-intervened in the economy. And so I'm interested in things that, that can help us to move to a more free, voluntary, like you might call it libertarian sort of society and to be actually working with people that are seeking to do that is is really cool and it has improved my my mental well-being and it has um you know made me a lot of good friends and uh i would you know if people are thinking about doing doing this kind of thing uh, i would say that it's totally possible what surprised me was was that i was able to move from traditional job to completely remote with four different clients that I was working with in four different countries within a period of about three months. And it, yeah. it was just so much easier than I would have thought it would, would have been. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the, the, the kind of magic phenomena that occurs when you align yourself with the thing that, one of the things that you find most deeply meaningful, and then you approach it with the utmost integrity, and then you do your best to express what your own unique perceptive filter is seeing in those things, you know? So in, in your case, it's, you know, Bitcoin and Austrian economics being that deeply meaningful thing, you as an individual trying to approach it with the utmost integrity. And then, you know, to use the example of the tweet threads, it's like, this is how I interpret what I've just read, you know? And, you know, there's obviously you borrow and it's not, it's not necessarily uh, all original content, let's say, but you, you know, you're, you're performing a service, which is like, I'm distilling the main insights from this thing to the degree that I see them and I'm putting them out there. And, and what do you know, people take notice and then you're on someone's radar and someone thinks that these ideas and this approach is useful and it opens doors, you know, and it, it's, it's such a simple process. All you've done is really just said, like, I'm interested in this. Here's what I'm interested about. And the world goes, Hey, you know, great, you know, let, let, let's talk. And I, I've heard this story so many times and it's, it's so wonderful, you know, because we have to, we, we refer to our fiat cells, right? Pre-Bitcoin. 
and we had to do so many things that we I was, this is kind of what I was mentioning before, but we have to do so many things that maybe we disagree with or that we're not passionate about or that doesn't get us excited or makes us feel artificial. That was, that's one of the worst things, man. Like for me in previous jobs and, and careers, like you would just do it and you'd be like, this, this isn't me. This is just, yeah. this is not ge genuinely who I am. And that's such a gross feeling. You know, because if you're not acting, you 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 kind of convince yourself like, okay, well, like it's not me. I'm kind of performing in this role, but like that's what people do, and I'm still me behind the performance, and I'm still me when I really get to hang out with my close friends or whatever. But it's like that's that's not really true. You are how you act. That's who you are. You are your actions, and you convince yourself that that's not the case. You convince yourself like, oh, I'm. I'm more than this. I've got more potential than this. And I'm not really that way. It's just I just what I have to do to get by. But from the world's perspective, no, that's who you are. And it's just, it's such a relief. And it's such an amazing phenomenon to see amongst all the crazy shit that's happened in the world and all the all the flaws and complaints that we might levy at it, like to see this thing emerge where people are actually able to be themselves and pursue what they believe to be meaningful and to be like almost authentic to a fault, right? Which, you know, in Bitcoin, Twitter, you might see some of that manifestation sometimes, but that you can actually do that and be rewarded by doors opening and opportunities happening and, and connecting with other like-minded individuals and actually begin building or contributing to a system that allows more and more and more and more people to do that. You know, so like, as you say about the Overton window, like, yeah, it's still very much people are in a different conceptual universe about what they think is, or, or you know, what they place importance on in terms of the functioning of society and economics and culture. But we can't forget that like so many are being siphoned off and sucked into this orange coin vortex and it's, it's changing them and it's changing their perception and it's moving that window and, you know, Sometimes we maybe we get down yeah. and think it's not happening fast enough, but it's it's happening pretty damn fast on a on a historical scale. And that's what's super hopeful. And when when people go through that vortex, they almost never go back. And so I, I think it's and the, the bigger that thing becomes, the more surface area it has to welcome in and accommodate different interests. Right. Because if what we're dealing with here is money, well, it affects basically everything and it affects individuals tremendously and the more people that come in and express themselves authentically in it and through it the more and more people that appeals to you know so that that overton window as much as it seems like it's still way fo like focused on the wrong thing it could be way sooner than we think that that could shift and people you know it could be on the thing moving more rapidly toward the thing that we think is uh it, a better focus for it to have and for people to be looking through it on on the more meaningful or important things you know so yeah no question there but it's just it, it's 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 amazing how fast this actually is happening you know we, we're in the eye of the storm and we can we can be wanting to think we wish it could happen more quickly but you know it, i think it's happening a lot faster than we we often give it credit for yeah yeah and i think the key there is that when you have an economy that is run 
on a Bitcoin standard or a sound money standard, the alignment between what people value and what you do for your job is much closer because it's all the product of people saying, I demand this. This is something that I, I genuinely want. I, this is not something that I am kind of creating through forcing people into doing something. This is uh, something that I'm demanding on the market. And I think a lot of the well-being stuff you're talking about there comes from knowing that we are genuinely contributing to society, that we are genuinely serving other people. And when you have a sound money system, the only way that you can make that money is by someone saying, hey, this is something that I want. Can you do it for me? And this is what I'm willing to give in return in monetary terms. And when we live in a distorted economy, like those signals aren't, aren't there. And that's one of the things that I, I see happening. Like when you move away from the kind of uh, government sort of fiat monetary system and towards like purely voluntary um, transactions, then yeah, people tend to be more fulfilled uh, spiritually as well as um, you know uh, doing doing things that they find um, are actually serving other people. Yeah, and it's just way more fun over here in the Bitcoin vortex. You know, like that's part of the appeal too. Like, even if you don't latch on to the economics or the problems of the existing system, I think people are just going to look over increasingly at this group of people being like, man, they seem content and happy and they're having fun and secure. Like, I want a piece of that, you know, and I'll, I'll learn about all the reasons why after I, I come in. But that certainly seems better than the, the world is burning, everything is horrible and fucked on fire sort of mentality that seems to be prevailing in a lot of people today. But, you know, you, you know, back to your story and what you're an example of and myself and many others is, is how people are extricating themselves from this system and trying to make themselves minimally impacted by the oppressive nature of this system and become, you know, establishing remote work, being adaptable physically, monetarily speaking, having their, their assets outside of the the far-reaching uh, grasp of the state and things like that. So this is, I guess, the segue into the free private city stuff because, <clears throat> you know, probably the biggest topic of conversation today in light of, you know, all the COVID stuff is where do you, like a transition is clearly happening. Where do you go to insulate yourself from what's happening? And will there be a balkanization? Will, will there be a, a breakdown of the size of nation states as a result of this move into the the, you know, the digital age or the information age, because, you know, what you and I are doing, like we are less uh, appealing or we are less lucrative tax entities as far as the state is concerned than someone who's living in London, working in London with their bank account in London or in Toronto or New York. And, you know, this will inevitably cause fracturing and, and, and a, a less and less ability for these large behemoth industrial age systems of political organization to maintain themselves. And so you mix in a bunch of, uh, you know, the, the pressures that a new economic system emerging will impose on that and the breaking points of the existing economic, financial, and monetary system. And it stands to reason, I think a lot of people would, would reason that you'll get a, a, a political fracturing. And so Bring me to the current state of this free, free private cities ideas. And also I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you think this balkanization or this fracturing will occur, the timeline it'll occur and maybe best 
practices and approaches to to weather it yeah so i I do think that the digital age is bringing about more is giving more power to individuals because they are able to work across multiple jurisdictions um, just by opening up their laptop and having an internet connection and one of the things that james dow davison and william reese mogg talk about in the sovereign individual is that the fact that in the industrial revolution there was so much focus on physical infrastructure factories developing this put this centralized populations and made populations easier to control and allowed the state to kind of grow around that and i do think now we're seeing a situation where the large companies that um you know have the largest market cap and make most money are operating um, either entirely or largely in the digital realm and they have their kind of physical capital is much less important than their um, intellectual capital and I think that's a really positive trend because it gives more power to uh, individuals to resist tyranny and to pursue uh, a kind of lifestyle that they that they um, desire rather than a kind of lifestyle that is imposed on them by the system in which they live so Free Private Cities Foundation is an organization that was founded by Titus Gable, who's a German um, mining entrepreneur. And he wrote a book in 2018. So this isn't a particularly new concept, but it does draw on a lot of, you know, uh, much older libertarian ideas. And that book is titled Free Private Cities, Making Governments Compete for You. And the idea behind it is that governments require citizens in order to generate revenue that's how they that's how they survive and if we live in a world where the citizens are able to move freely which we are we have kind of become and we've seen more of that sort of changing a bit with covid but we can come back to that in that sort of system governments are going to start to realize that actually you can't just impose top down what you want on your population and expect them still to be there you're going to have to make your jurisdiction more attractive to um, to people that are mobile. And what the Free Private Cities Foundation does is it tries to make the moral case for cities that operate autonomously, that don't, that try and um, make themselves attractive to remote workers and don't have this dynamic of a powerful ruler and a less powerful citizen. But they have a partnership of equals where there's not just this hypothetical um, social contract between the government and the citizen, but there's actually a real contract for services in the same way that we have a con- contract for um, you know, services that we might require acquire in other areas of life, whether it's like our, our, our phone or internet service or whatever. We have services for um, things like you know, getting your rubbish collected or someone maintaining the streets for you or maintaining the p- policing. And free private cities is an alternative model for for doing that, essentially. And the foundation is about promoting the concept. And there are also organizations that partner closely with the foundation that TESIS is also involved in um, that are seeking to actually invest in specific projects in uh, different countries that um, align closely to this model. So there are a number of projects in Honduras that are doing some of the things that are related to this free private cities model. 
Um, there's also uh, other projects in the pipeline which aren't announceable yet, but in other parts of the world. But um, the reason I got excited about this concept is because I read the book. The book is fantastic. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, I'd recommend um, giving it a read because it really makes the strong moral case for autonomous cities that are based on mutual consent. And what I liked about this organization is that it wasn't just kind of complaining and saying, oh, we're libertarians, we know about Austrian economics, we know that this system doesn't work well, and we can explain why it doesn't work well. They're kind of saying, right, enough talking, we're actually gonna start building something. We're gonna start building a, uh, putting, putting real investment into building uh, new cities that align more closely to this model. And in 2018, it was just an idea. There are now three or four actual projects around the world that are in part aligned to this idea. And I find that really exciting that in just a couple of years, we've actually got some, some real progress on the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with some of them. I know in, in Honduras, the one on Rotan, Prospera, and then there's one inland. The thing, you know, and I'm all for it, right? Experiment, you know, hopefully there'll be thousands of these and the cream will rise to the top and, and people will preferentially select the best ones and they will receive the best, uh, you know, uh, rewards and they'll proliferate, et cetera. The thing, and then there's, I guess there's another way people are approaching this because some of these things seem like they're trying to build like a, an OS for a free private city. And they're really trying to, you know, uh, put a lot of intentional work into these contracts and the laws and regulations of these places. And then of course, there's another approach that some Bitcoiners are pursuing in light of, you know, the current times, which is just to say, establish sovereignty as well as you can, right? You know, so water source, let's say independent of the electricity grid, food source, maybe you have some cattle on some land, that kind of thing. And that's the best way to ride out this transition while the nation state goes through its transformation or degradation or whatever, however you want to call it. And I think the, the latter is probably a more adaptable, adaptable approach, if for no other reason that it has less uh, operating rules built into it, right? Whereas these other systems, maybe they, they kind of live or die by whether or not they've structured things properly and 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 the the less structured one may benefit uh, in because of that but th th my big question with all this is because of again in, in a sovereign individual they talk about the logic of violence this is why things have kind of and and the economic systems that have prevailed as a result of technology is why we get the political structure and size that we have gotten. So in the industrial age, we get these big, huge governments. People are, are not mobile. They're in factories. The tax base is immobile. Um, and there's, you know, there's obviously rationale behind why these political systems emerge as they do. However, coming out of that, we're, we're coming from a stage where governments are enormous, where they have basically absolute power, you know, maybe the pinnacle of which is access to nu nuclear weapons, let's say. And how does the monopoly on violence change work is a consideration in this more distributed, balkanized, free private city sort of emerging world that's happening now? What's your take on that particular aspect of all this? Well, one of the key differentiating factors of the free private city is that 
no one is forced to go there. And also they, you can control who comes in, who comes out. You're in charge of that whole system. Now, a lot of people, they think about that as, oh, it's like a kind of walled enclave for the, for the few and, you know, it's going to be exclusive. But that doesn't make business sense. If you're a business, you want to try and encourage as many customers as possible to come and set up in your jurisdiction. And it's only people that are going to come and cause trouble and be, be violent or violate other people's rights that you're going to say aren't allowed to take part in that society. And I think that, as you say, the cities will live and die based on what their rules are. But the thing is, if there are a number of these of these things, a market develops, we call it the market for living together. And the one the states that come in and decide that they're going to try and order everyone's lives, I just don't think there will be a market for them. People already have that if they want to move to any, <laughs> you know, Western democracy, there are already lots of rules about what you can and can't do. And the state plays a very big role in your in your life. So the, 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 the existing um, projects that I, I would say are aligned to the free private cities idea, they all err on the side of very minimal intervention. Um, in, in Prospera, they have to have income tax um, for, for the people, but they keep that as, you know, it's, uh, sorry, in, in the ZAs in Honduras in general, they have to have income tax uh, for people. That's part of the, the setup that they've got there. But, um, you know, they keep things like that very minimal and they keep the regulations very minimal. Um, they try and get architects to come in to build new things and say to them, if you could build anything you wanted, um, you know, what would you build? Come up with a concept. So the experience to date, and I'll admit it is limited because it's quite a new concept, but it is real, it is there, uh, has been that these developments are pursuing a more uh, laissez-faire or a more uh, a less government heavy-handed uh, model. And so uh, I think that there is benefit for certain people to pursuing something within their own country. Like I know that I'm always going to have ties to the UK and I want to maintain ties to the UK because that's where my family are. That's where my friends are. That's where I grew up. That's where I'm kind of closer to the, uh, the culture. You know, I can integrate more easily into that culture. So I'm always going to have connections to the UK, but I'm not sure it's somewhere where I want to, um, to live all the time. And if there are places that are offering something that is much more aligned to my values, particularly when it comes to things like how future uh, public health problems are going to be solved, then I can see that I would want to actually move away. And you can live, you can live a fairly independent lifestyle in certain countries, but if people impose curfews, tell you can't go outside without a vaccine passport, or you can't uh, participate in normal life, then you are limited in the kind of life you can live. I mean, the kind of like, I really enjoyed your episode with um, Joel from Untapped Growth, and that's a great way of living for a lot of people. But you are limited in the economies of scale that can develop and in the economic cooperation you can have with everyone living in this kind of way. Like, I think cities are a good thing. They're part of the, they're part of the economy for a reason. And I think they would definitely exist in a, free market because of the agglomeration benefits that come from living together so i think what i'd say is that there there would be a place there would be a place for both of these and um, i think that both
both options for people will become more popular as time goes on. Yeah. So I, what do you think? Bitcoin obviously uh, changes the ability of the, the state, the monopoly power, let's say, to extract tribute from people, right? It makes it people's assets uh, more difficult to, to harvest. How do you think that will change the, the structure of the governments that we see today? And in particular, how will it impact their ability to maintain the, the monopoly on violence and exact it, right? This is the thing I keep coming back to, because you could say, yeah, there's a distributed network of free private cities and they're nestled within these larger states. But if something like what's currently happening with COVID come down, sure, the free private city is not gonna coerce you, but maybe the monopoly power of the region, the US, China, whoever, who has influence on many things downstream, maybe they coerce the free private city and then you're just back to square one. So in, in this emerging world, and this is the thing that I keep grappling with, I understand how Bitcoin changes the logic of violence, but in, in terms of how the transition goes from the monopoly, the, the, the institution, the government that has a monopoly on violence, and how it either permits or impedes uh, these the formation of these other uh, models for living together. You know, how does that play out in your mind? I think the theoretical model with this and we're talking about very profound changes, Rip if we follow the economic logic of what will happen with Bitcoin. And with very profound changes, you have to be cautious about like the probability you assign to them happening. But I think if Bitcoin continues to function as it has done for the past 10 years, in that no one has been able to you know, carry out a successful attack on the network or no one has found a way of revealing everyone's private keys like the technological side of it has proved to be incredibly uh, sound and reliable i would expect more and more people to start using it as a savings technology we're already seeing we're seeing that's already happening to a huge degree and you would see more and people start to take advantage of its network of its um monetary network properties. I mean, the stuff that Jack Mallers is doing at Strike is, is really phenomenal in terms of just using the Lightning Network to transform the entire kind of global remittance industry. Um, I think that more and more people will just move towards this and there's a market for money. And it's, it's a kind of zero sum market in a way. And the larger Bitcoin grows, the more it takes market share from traditional uh, stores of value and means of exchange, and those are other currencies. So you would just expect there to be higher inflation. You would expect governments that have draconian, like legacy fiat monetary policies to just become less attractive and the power to gradually move towards the Bitcoin based economies. And you can say something like that and not put a timeline on it and it's quite easy to do <laughs> i think the question in my mind is is you know how how long does it take i feel like things are already moving in that direction and bitcoin is already growing incredibly quickly mm. um,
but uh, we're up against a lot. We're up against uh, Bitcoin is 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 barely on a lot of people's radars, and I think that there are lots of very mainstream narratives about things like um, climate change, about social justice, and people wanting people feeling very strongly that the government should be able to redistribute wealth in the way that it desires. There's a lot of people that for them bitcoin is perhaps just about on their radar but once it gets bigger and bigger there will be a lot of people that are trying to disrupt it and what i don't know is how that is going to play out i suspect mm. it's going to be extremely difficult but bitcoin is incredibly robust and uh, the economic arguments are on its side in the long term mm. and that's why i'm i decided to work in it and that's why i um, encourage other people to to use it as a way of achieving monetary sovereignty. Yeah, yeah, I, I largely agree with that. And it's interesting to think of you know, let's say the circular economy of of Bitcoin and the people who have adopted it as a unit of account. You know, it's in one stage right now. But what does the power and influence of that network look like when we ten x from here, when we're at six hundred thousand dollars Bitcoin rather than sixty? I mean. That's a pretty big jump in influence and power. And then what about 100x, you know, and, and the, the efficiency of capital and the generation of wealth in that network is going to so outcompete that happening in those legacy monetary systems that, you know, that network will definitely accrue more and more power, wealth and influence. And I would think that's a good thing, I guess, you know what's on all, all, all our minds is how does that transition look? And, and you know, it, in the sovereign individual, you know, we, look, we may look out on the world today and we, you know, you, you reference uh, the current, what's happening currently with COVID and it's like, oh, well, you know, black swan events. It's like, well, maybe not, you know, maybe the reason why the approach has been as it has been and let's say consciously from a certain cohort of people, mostly subconsciously from a larger cohort of people in positions of power and influence, that this sort of overbearing response is a direct manifestation of the increasing ineptitude, incompetence, irrelevance of that massive centralized authority that is state power attempting to maintain its grasp on control. This is certainly how they frame it and articulate it in the sovereign individual. And I think it's a more useful framework for understanding what's happening today, because otherwise, you know, you might just think, oh, it's just, you know, coincidence and things will go back to normal. But if you frame it in terms of, you know, monetary system unwinding, the political structure no longer being relevant or fit for the technological uh, circumstance that predominates, well, then it, it, it makes a lot more sense to interpret it as a, a even, if you don't want to attribute malice, a subconscious response to that disintegration of power, that using an yeah. event like this is, is a way to consolidate control. However, if that is the case, it kind of begs the question, well, how does that end? You know, how, how, what, how do, how do, what does it morph and change into? You know, I'm sure you've yeah. given that some thought. What are, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, that is a really interesting part of the book, isn't it? Where he talks about, where they talk about nation states eventually 
shutting down international flights because this is a way of kind of keeping the population pegged in and really that in the context of covid is pretty interesting and seems very prescient um i'm honestly not convinced that that's actually what's going through the minds of people that are in governments i don't think they really realize what's happening uh, in the way that james dow davidson and william reese mogg do um I think they gen genuinely believe what they what they say most of the time in terms of believing that government acting in the way it does is the right thing and they get a lot of power and prestige from being that way and it's easier to convince yourself of a self-serving narrative but the reality is what it is the reality won't change and i, I hear like the UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak talking about we're going to increase this funding for the NHS and we're going to fund it through extra national insurance contributions and we're going to put an extra tax on this and all their models assume population stays where it is or grows at the previous rate and that people maintain the same income and you just take more of their income and the world doesn't work like that the world people respond to incentives and economics is a product of human action it's not a product of statistical aggregates that are kind of cooked up in uh by university economists it's a product of people's real choices mm -hmm. and i think people will will move um will start moving to places that are freer but as i say that there do need to be those places that, that really do exist and this is why i think that free private cities is a, a a good kind of complement to the people that are seeking more autonomy within the existing nation state. Yeah, I think in the book, I, I don't think they attribute conscious uh, agency to the response by states to like close down the borders, for example. For you know, let's take the unreal the comments by Yellen recently, the unrealized capital gains thing, which is complete insanity, but. Uh, I, like, I don't see that as them sitting around the table being like, oh, you know, the information age and people are distributing, they're more easy to hide wealth. And like, we really need to stop that or reverse that trend. I think it's just like the state has become so big and bloated. All they they see the bottom line, they're like, we need more money to keep doing what we're doing. Well, how do we get more money? Well, tax this and control that and tax this. And so I agree with you that it's not they don't see the big broad picture and they're trying to respond in kind. I see it them yeah. just trying to manage a system that is no longer fit for the technological paradigm that we're in and the ways in which people are responding to it. And they're trying to hold on to hold on for dear life to their power and to their influence. And it's manifested in all these absurd things that are being discussed and imposed now. Um, which I don't know if that's better or worse, because if at least if people were conscious of it, if you could change their mind, they could do differently. But if they're just kind of so embedded in a in a system and an ideology, then their efforts to maintain that are the very efforts that will not only sow the seeds of its own destruction, but will cause greater and greater misery for the people that they're trying to impose that on. You know, and, I, and again, I think <clears throat> we see that, you know, predominate at the current time. Curious, curious, uh, curious to ask you, how have the existing free private city projects responded to the COVID situation? 
Have they had the latitude to resist lockdowns, masks, mandates of various kinds, or have they fallen in line? So the existing projects have, I think, tended to err on the side of caution um, with, with this in terms of doing what most uh, societies have done. And, you know, I'm not running one of the, city, one of the cities. Um, the problem that you have is if you are a development that is very new and is trying to set something up that is pretty game-changing, then it's very easy for someone to come along when that's at an early stage and say, no, this is some crazy radical experiment. We're going to shut it down because look, like we've got a COVID crisis and these people aren't wearing masks and these are radical people. We need to have send the military in. And so you can, I, I can understand why you might want to go more in line with what other states have done. Um, there haven't been these kind of lockdowns um, in some of these places, but uh, I feel like there is, it's, it's not a radical diversion from the, the existing policies. What you might expect is if more of these uh, states develop, and they get larger, they turn into places like, you know, uh, more like city, city states like Hong Kong or Singapore, that they might pursue a, a different policy because they have more power. Like um, someone told me the other day that Singapore has more uh, tanks than the German army at the moment or something because of their economic <laughs> power. Like as states get stronger, they are able to draw more economic resources and, def and defend themselves better and they become harder to it becomes harder for them to resist uh, pressure from outside um, so what I would stress about existing projects and as I say there are a number of projects out there that are kind of like partly aligned to the principles in other ways they diverge but um, there is a very kind of real politic consideration regarding what they do at an early stage in their development right I, I can appreciate that, but to your knowledge, what were, what things were imposed in, in these places? Do you know, like you talking mask mandates were, or vax mandates or whatever, like you said, there was no lockdowns. Um, so I, I can't, I don't really want to uh, say too much on it, to be honest, John, uh, because I think I'm getting the sense that they weren't so free. <laughs> Well, no, Some no, actually, I don't think there were there were strict um, impositions on people, mm -hmm. but I think things like people were encouraged to wear masks and things like that. I think that those sorts of things were 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 encouraged. But um, you know, as I say, it's I, I haven't been to these places yet myself and visited, and so mm -hmm. I'm uh, it's hard to know exactly what what's going on on the ground um, yeah. in terms of in terms of that. But you know, I I think that. With, uh, with COVID, you're in a slightly difficult situation. There's, there's a lot of pressure on people to do certain things. And, uh, you know, you, you have to act in a way that you think is, um, is going to be prudent in terms of your, you know, long-term ability to, to grow. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the often ugly process of trying to match solutions with reality and figuring out uh, how to do so, you know, and, and 
This comes to me, it comes back down to the, the issue of force, right? Like you could characterize freedom as the ability to say no, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody can impose anything on you if you don't want to do what they're suggesting or trying to impose. What is the defense model? And I understand that the existing free private cities are kind of nestled within existing jurisdictions and they probably receive, they have, probably have some sort of protection agreement with them of some kind, but what do you see as the role of defense in uh, the future of these private jurisdictions? I would say that that would be probably the primary role that the city operator would play in the cities. It would be to keep, protect property rights um, because that's how you know economies can only function well if people have property rights and they are they are protected right. in in some way. And so I would see that as like you've got a problem. So let's take Honduras as an example. Honduras is quite a dangerous country to be in by global standards. It's got something like the third highest homicide rate in the world, and business isn't good there because people can't if they invest capital they can't guarantee the security of that capital. People are less likely to move there because they're worried about their personal safety. And what, what uh, a free private city model or what the ZA model offers uh, as one of its key features is security on the ground. And that's a big feature. So people that go and move to a, a ZA, uh, take Morazan, for example, they have a very uh, big focus on providing security to the local population that work there. And they are really inundated with applications of people, that, local people that want to live there because they know that if they go and work there, they can have a, a safe life for themselves. And it's not about for them like, oh, I can smoke weed or I can do something that's like libertarian that's not allowed in normal society. It's like, I've got the protection of my life, liberty and property in this place. Mm -hmm. And I just want to have a normal family life and I want to um, be able to make some money and save some money and create a better future for my family. Uh, so that's already, I would say, in, in the ZA model, something that is really important. Um, they, they have like military, the military agreement there is with the host government. So there is a, a certain percentage of profits that are paid to the host government of Honduras to protect them militarily from like outside attack and i think that would be a likely future model it's kind of how hong kong and china work as well right like you've got it's one when it was um handed back to china in 1997 it's basically one country two systems you've got internal autonomy but you're part of china nominally and also the military uh, situation is overseen by china uh, you might get similar situations like that uh, yeah. evolving let's let's explore this for a second because it's something I'm, I'm really curious about. And the obvious answer may not be the most likely, and we're just speculating because we don't know, but let's assume that because Bitcoin exists and that's the most concentrated form of capital, right? Money. Yeah. So let's say that that is, because that's so inaccessible, it does dramatically change the logic of violence, right? So let's say you get less armies crossing borders on horseback to steal the gold supply of their adversary, right? We get less of that because there's a far less incentive. But let's assume that there's two competing private cities that are in close proximity to one another, and one's economic model just way outperforms the other, let's say. And so yeah. one is growing faster, and one has a 
geographic imperative of some kind. And let's say, you know, th this one says, okay, well, we could do more with that geography and we want it. Again, less of a magnetic pull because there's not so much to be derived from forcefully <clears throat> taking over another person's jurisdiction. But I don't think we can say that that impulse is eliminated entirely. And so, because force will still exist, violence will still be a factor. And let's say land and productive capacity is scarce, even if we enter into an abundant, a more abundant world and a more digital world, which ostensibly might have an introduce an element of kind of like infinite abundance in a certain domain of our lives and our in, in how we create wealth and value. So, because right now, like, you know, armies determine borders basically and preserve borders. And how do you think the, the distribution of, of land ownership on which these private jurisdictions are built mingles with the benefits of violence in the future? Yeah, really good question. So, you're right, you're never gonna eliminate aggression and violence in the world. The question is how do you minimize it? And with the free private cities model, there is a contract between the city operator and the citizen that they sign. And it outlines what will be, what will lie within the city operator's responsibility. So for example, I will, the city operator will uh, keep the streets safe and if you're mugged on the streets city operator will seek the perpetrator or compensate you monetarily or whatever it is each city could have its own individual contract but there's not a process whereby the only way that an invasion could happen like that is if there, that was somehow in the contract that you know invasions were allowed of other uh, kinds of kinds of cities and people would have to make a decision as to whether they were, um, were going to move to that sort of city or not. Like, so that would be within the contract. And the way that the contract works is that you would have third party, like arbitrating courts that would oversee any disputes between the operator and the citizen, much like you know, the way that works in international business law at the moment, where you have countries, uh, you have third party country courts that might adjudicate a particular dispute between international businesses and if you have businesses that are operating like companies and they say we're just going to ignore the verdict of this court and we're just going to do what we want we're going to just operate like a pariah then that again is not a very attractive investment proposition like, I don't want to live in a country that's going to start invading people because people don't just sit back when they get invaded they invade back and it's also very costly to fund a military expedition. It's not like, oh, I've got the military. Let's just send them over there, take their stuff, and we've got all their wealth plus ours. It's like, no, you've got to pay for that, that expedition. You've got to pay for all of the uh, reputational costs that that, that that brings about. You've got to like pay for extra security for all of the people that will be hostile towards your state. And so... You're never going to eliminate the violence, but I do think this model uh, minimizes it. And we can yeah. see throughout history that where you have had small states emerge, um, there have been long periods where states, like take Liechtenstein, take Monaco, uh, take uh, San Marino, like these states 
or all got very large neighbors who are very much more powerful than them. But those states haven't invaded, the larger states haven't invaded the smaller states, mm. in part because they recognize that it's good to trade peacefully and they benefit from peaceful trade um, economically with, with, with their neighbors. So I would like to see that dynamic playing out more broadly in the world. And I think that having power that is less centralized, where people have more direct connection to those that are operating the infrastructure around them, and there's less of this uh, centralization of power, I think in that kind of world, we will have more peace and we will have fewer problems with um, aggression from, from uh, between states. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. And I, and I guess it could also be the case. I mean, when everyone, you talk about that unifying, you know, states might, or free private cities or whatever, might engage in conflict dependent upon like how their kind of primary ordering mechanism diverges or how their incentives diverge. And if everyone's on the same monetary unit, that's already a massive leg up in, in creating cohesiveness. But I guess yeah. it could also be the case that in this hyper-connected world where information travels at the speed of light, the, the uh, most beneficial way to structure a given city or an economy will probably be very obvious and known, right? The, the, the disparity that one creates versus another will be very clear and most economic actors will probably adopt the, the dominant form or the best form of organization. And in that case, you know, you made me think of this because you were talking about the cost of just, you know, sending the army out to do whatever. If you assume that the asymmetry of wealth and power between roughly equal states is like very minor, and then you also add into that mix that the benefit of, you know, having the army cross the border is only the relatively long-term capital of let's say the land and not the immediate capital of the gold i.e the bitcoin then maybe it just doesn't make really any economic sense because the cost of sent you know the big cost of sending that army across for the relatively non-immediate and small payoff maybe it just completely changes that dynamic and like it only works if you get a big payoff up front i.e the concentrated wealth that has historically been gold if yeah. that's no longer the case, then it's like, this doesn't even make economic sense. We're shooting ourselves in the foot here. And, you know, another interesting element that seems to be emerging, a trend that seems to be emerging to influence all this stuff is like, it seems like people will increasingly become self-contained, um, increasingly, yeah, self-contained economies. Not that they won't interact and trade, but, you know, if you're generating your own power and if you're generating your own food and if you're growing your own vegetables if you're you know doing all these things that technology is now allowing us to do i wonder seemingly that might even push the value of just geography and land down even further because it's there's not as much of an imperative to acquire new land to grow food for your growing population if every new unit of the population is more independent you know, and more self-contained in, in a sense. So maybe, you know, maybe, maybe that changes the logic as well. It's super interesting, man. I mean, we, we live in just insane times, like in terms of change and 
the next 10, 20 years, I think we're going to see a ton of this, which again, I mean, I think it's the cause for also anxiety. There's a tremendous amount of hope, but there's a tremendous amount of anxiety because we're really, we're emerging from a really dark sort of system and potentially moving into its darkest days and trying to build something better as we come out of it. Uh, what, what are your steps now, do you think, in terms of these private cities, in terms of people establishing citadels, I'm sure you thought about it a, a, a ton. Like we've talked a bit about being adaptable and being remote, but what are you personally focused on establishing for this transition that we've kind of been exploring? Well, I'm hoping that we can encourage more projects to develop because I think the larger the market is for these projects and the more of them there are in a particular area, the more normalized they become and the more difficult they are to crush at an early stage. So my efforts are focused on spreading the word about doing governance differently and I'm hoping to visit some of these ZAs in the next uh, in the next few months uh, and I'm hoping to go to some additional countries where we might see new projects and uh, I, I'm personally trying to keep myself in a flexible situation where I can respond if there's going to be for example, another lockdown and I can move to somewhere else and I don't have to feel tied to a particular place because of because of my job. And Bitcoin is obviously another part of that. Uh, as time goes on, I'll be looking to uh, Bitcoinize more and more of what I what I do. And uh, I think that that's a really important way of giving yourself um, the ability to to uh, respond to what's coming, because I, I think none of us really saw something quite as extreme as what happened in 2020 happening. And I don't know what the future is going to be. There's lots of different things that could happen. And I think you just have to kind of make sure that you've got, you've got savings, you've got flexibility, that you're um, not putting your eggs in those more like traditional baskets, if you like. Um, regarding like what the old system is so that's roughly what I'm trying to do right how about yourself John very similar I mean I am you know concerned about the way things are going and it seems to un unless you have you know your cabin in the woods citadel already with your own water and food and and all that kind of stuff and you can hunker down you know if you're still going to be out in the world to some degree I, I can't see any other uh we can't see a better approach than just being as adaptable as possible and having the vast majority, if not all of your wealth in a money that you can take with you that nobody can touch, i.e. Bitcoin. And, you know, if, if you can, if your income is not geographically determined and, and your savings are in Bitcoin, then at least you, you're, you're ahead of most of the, most people. And you, you can, you know, my, I'm sure we've all heard this uh, joke, but like, if you're being chased by a wolf or a bear in the forest, right? You don't have to be the fastest. You just have to be faster than the slowest. You know, I kind of hate to use that because it means somebody's <laughs> going to get fucked. But, you know, it, 
being adaptable and being able to play that jurisdictional arbitrage game seems like the name of the game. Um, And hopefully there's enough desire for freedom, autonomy, individual choice in the world that jurisdictions will kind of keep the light of freedom alive. Because one of the elements of this whole COVID situation that's been concerning is that so few have chosen to do that. And the populations in these countries are so, in my opinion, um, hysterical and kind of um, brainwashed by the state apparatus and state propaganda and that Overton window that you were talking about before, that they willingly and with almost no resistance go along with so many of these things that I think probably to you and I and many people listening are almost unthinkably egregious infringements on, you know, rights and freedoms and, you know, that kind of stuff. So the, the jurisdictional arbitrage game only works if, if some people are offering different things in these different jurisdictions. And right now, like, it seems like that may be the case. And, and hopefully as the economic uh, capacity of this network grows and grows, the incentives to accommodate them, as we've been discussing, will grow along yeah. with that. And jurisdictions will make that calculation and say, well, do I want to piss off the US, the IMF, the WHO, whoever they're beholden to, or do I want to attract several billion dollars in capital from this cohort of people um, that's demanding these sorts of uh, regulations and services and, and, uh, and that kind of stuff. So I'm hopeful. And the, be- and the best way to take uh, advantage of that is to, is to do what you're doing, which is be adaptable, work on the things that are most meaningful, stack as much Bitcoin as you possibly can, because, you know, th- those are the keys to the kingdom, I guess. Yeah. Um, um, Peter, have we, have we not touched on anything that you wanted to explore today? Well, just to say as well, that I think, coming back to what you were saying about these <laughs> being the fastest one running away from the bear, um, it is important that we, make people understand that Bitcoin is not just about getting really wealthy and Bitcoin going to the moon and uh, it's going to save us because we're going to have so much savings. Like, I think this is something you do really well on your podcast. You make the moral, ethical case that if we have a sound money standard, it's not something that is for the privileged few, it's for everyone in society. And when you have a society that's based on peaceful interaction only, that's good for everyone. And that brings up the people that are kind of at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder uh, as well. And that's what really excites me about Bitcoin. And uh, I yeah, want to emphasize that. And I want to say thanks for doing all the good work you do on the podcast, because I think you're a very, very thoughtful person about the ethics behind Bitcoin. And that's a message that we really need to be getting out there. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think this goes back to the, the comparison between the fiat world and a money that's instantiated based on coercion and one that's completely voluntary. And what are the principles that underlie those two options? And I think what's happening with Bitcoin is, you know, and I talk about some of the more esoteric elements of this quite often, but it's almost like an alchemical notion that the, the principles in the thing that you engage with and that is kind of so high up on your your value hierarchy ends up being transmuted into you, right? So the, these principles of openness and fairness and honesty and truth 
and connectedness and unity and all the other things that big, you know, you might ascribe to Bitcoin, they start to permeate the mindset of, of people. That seems, seems to be what I'm observing at least. And I think that's a really good thing. You know, I think those are really great principles and, and the more people interact with them and integrate them, I think the, um, the more hope we have for humanity, I guess we'll put it that way. So, um, but man, I appreciate you, you making the time today. I appreciate the, the work you're doing. I really hope um, that more options emerge in, in, the, in the various approaches to new organization and new economies. And you know, I think it's super cool the, the work that you guys are doing at the Free Private Cities. So maybe in a, in a year or so, we'll, we'll touch base again and, and see where things are at, if there's more jurisdictions that are popping up and more options for people, because you know, that, that's what we, we really need right now. Yeah, I really hope the same, John. I think it's just about giving people more options. Like, no one's going to force you to go and live in a new city that emerges or have a different governance model. But there are lots of people that want to have a different option, an option to be freer, to do things differently, and to build society in a different way. And so I'm also hopeful that we'll, we'll be making some good progress. And I'd love to talk to you again. Um, yeah, let's let's, uh, let's do that again in the future. And um, it's been really good to talk to you today. Thanks. Awesome. Well, as we like to say, freedom go up. And so I'm certainly hoping we see more of that. And uh, yeah, appreciate it, brother. We'll talk again soon. Great. Thanks very much, John. Bye-bye.